I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. It's such a delight already to be talking to Sarah Swanyan Bynum, the author of the novels Ms. Hempel Chronicles, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and Madeline is Sleeping, a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Jan- Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize. Her fictions appeared in many magazines and anthologies. She's the recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and an NEA Fellowship and has been named one of 20 under 40 fiction writers by The New Yorker. She lives in LA and her latest story collection is called Likes. Welcome, Sarah. Maris, I'm so happy to be here. It's such a delight. We, we were just talking about how weird it is to um, communicate via Zoom when, when you can see a tiny little picture of yourself. <laughs> I'm going to try to ignore it. I will try. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to pay attention to, to your face. Um, so tell me about likes and how you blend the more fantastical stories with their fairy tale undertones, some blatant, some not, with with the more realistic stuff that you write about. I do think a part of that impulse arises very naturally out of living in Los Angeles, <laughs> which is a city where you sort of are constantly reminded of the very porous nature between fantasy and realities. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, last year I, I had to take uh, a loved one to the emergency room late at night and we're there and there's all of the dread and there's all of the anxiety. And then Emma Stone enters <laughs> the emergency room decked out in disco wear and she's there with a small entourage and it's because her mom has 
broken her arm at a roller rink because Emma Stone was like hosting a wonderful Planned Parenthood fundraiser. That's <laughs> So, so here you are in the emergency room, like at one o'clock in the morning, and there's Emma Stone looking totally fabulous in like sequins and hot pants. And that's what living in Los Angeles is like. So I think that so much of that um, wonderful sense of incongruity just permeates my way of seeing the world. And it, and it permeates the collection. It's bookended by these great celebrity sightings in, in <laughs> two of your stories. Like your first story is I think one of the creepier ones and you're setting a mood and it feels, I feel that sense of dread and all of a sudden <laughs> John C. Riley pops up. Tell me about that. Um. I think that the magical appearance of John C. Riley was in part inspired by actually seeing John C. Riley <laughs> at the Altadena Waldorf School annual fair. Amazing. So some of that was just like pure documentary <laughs> reportage. Um, but I also just, I think, wanted to suggest how his sudden appearance feeds into the mother's anxiety that somehow she has not made the right choices as a parent. That if she had chosen a different preschool, if she had pursued a different educational philosophy, she would somehow then be in conversation, be in the same orbit with an actor whom she feels such respect for. Um, (laughs) But also I was interested in seeing how um, John C. Riley's appearance for the mother feels as real as the appearance of the Earl King to the daughter, you know, that this is all sort of happening on the same um, plane that sinister elf kings and Paul Thomas Anderson stars (laughs) are sort of all operating within the same realm of of reality. Yeah, and and it's and the mother and daughter certainly have. Otherwise, they'd be missing each other completely. <laughs> they're 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 seeing the world so so differently with such different agendas. Exactly, like the daughter doesn't see John C. Riley, and the mother can't see the Earl King, um, but they're, they are equally real and equally potent to each of them. Yeah, well, I love that story. Um, tell me about the placement of stories, like um, how you chose to put that one first and like what message you wanted to send by putting that story first. Oh, that's such a great question because actually the original order of the stories didn't include Earl King coming first. Um, But then as I was sort of moving the pieces around, I just felt as if that story 
first of all, there's just the physical entering uh, mm -hmm. into the fair that the story opens with. And I thought that might be a lovely way of suggesting that passage into a book that, that, that occurs when we first open this sense of um, not quite knowing what's going to be waiting for us, but that, that, that sense of anticipation and wanting to be entertained and wanting to be taken elsewhere. Um, so, so that somehow seemed like an apt way to open the book just as, as as the mother and daughter are approaching the entrance to yeah. this uh, elves fair. Um, but I, I also um, thought that that story might be a good opening for the reasons that, that you articulated so well is that it's a story that does bring together both the contemporary and the fascination with celebrity and the anxieties of parenthood with a uh, set of fairy tale motifs. Um, and I sort of felt like that might be a helpful template for the reader as they move through the book, that this was a book that was going to be moving between those two registers frequently. So yes. I sort of thought, oh, maybe this is like a good key. Um, by which to read the map of the book. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then the second story, of course, is also, it's, it's funny, I hadn't considered that, yes, you live in LA, and so there is this element of interacting with celebrities or people you are, you know, whatever you want to call them, people you are aware of as a like mundane kind of thing. Um, and so, so in the second story, you're talking about a woman who lives next door to, I picture Debbie Mazar. Exactly oh. <laughs> right. Oh, Maris, I'm so tickled. That you just <laughs> She's nailed a that. regular uh, danceteria, which is how I was around Madonna. Yes, Debbie, Debbie Mazar was, was completely the muse of that particular story. But then there was also a little bit of Rosie Perez. Mixed there was in a little there. Rosie Perez. Uh, Rosie Perez. I used to live in uh, Fort Greene in Brooklyn. And like one of like the highlights of my morning would be occasionally I'd see Rosie Perez walking her dog. So there was like a little homage to, to Rosie mm -hmm. Perez in there too. But absolutely, Debbie was was the primary inspiration for, for the character in that story. Um, and again, it was, was um, provoked by my wonder at being at the same elementary school <laughs> briefly with, with this was this is while uh, Debbie was still living in, in LA. She's back in New York now, but there was a, a um, period there where her uh, children went to the same elementary school as my daughter and she would show up to every school function like the morning meetings like looking so fantastic I'm I mean sure. completely completely done um, at eight o'clock in the morning I mean it was just such an exhilarating little brush with a, a person who I had really 
followed and admired since I was a young teenager. Do you happen to watch Younger? Well, you know, I don't, but I should because my daughter adores Sutton Foster oh, and yeah. I adore Debbie Mazar. So it would be like this wonderful, like meeting of, of obsessions. Um, and books. So I should. Yes. <laughs> books as a subplot is always um, weird and funny, I think. And speaking of, I feel like this is a good, tell me about um, the decision to name the story collection um, after likes um, and make that be the title story. Because I do think that like Younger is a show about millennial pink and um, <laughs> social media strategy. There, there's something, there's something a little fairy childish about that show too. Yeah, tell me about likes. So the the title of the book is borrowed from one of the stories in the collection, and in the context of the story itself, likes refers back very specifically to the idea of social media likes and the the 11 year old daughter uh, spends a lot of time on Instagram and her sad dad is attempting to understand her and attempting to find some window into her by trying to parse her Instagram post. <laughs> so <laughs> likes in that case, uh, you know, is very much sort of coming out of the, the language of social media. But I hope that with the title Overall. of the collection of yeah. the whole that it might take on a broader more expansive sense uh yes likes the clicking on hearts but but also <laughs> likes just in the uh, more timeless sense of the things that give us pleasure, the things that we find ourselves drawn to, what we have an affinity for, our obsessions, our favorites, our predilections. Um, so I, I hope it has uh, a, a, a somewhat more encompassing sense uh, for, for the book as a whole. Indeed. And I feel like reading that story, um, especially during this time, like I feel like I read it when, I, when it came out, but during the pandemic, I feel like I'm constantly asking, is this normal? Like, is my depression normal? Is my dread normal? And I, I can't imagine being a parent right now and, and trying to gauge how they're doing mentally. <laughs> Yeah, no, and that is exactly the question that hounds the father uh, throughout that story. Is what his daughter going through normal? Uh, and and of course, and and you you um, phrasing it this way makes me realize that that of course the question that goes unspoken, but is the real question of the story, is the dad asking himself, <laughs> is what I'm feeling normal? <laughs> It's a question he never articulates, but of course he's so 
uh, preoccupied uh, with trying to assess the normality or not normality of what his daughter is going through, that it becomes a way of not asking that question of himself. Um, and, and I mean, this past eight months has been such a peculiar experience of physically being in such proximity as parents and children. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, eating all of our meals together, <laughs> going nice. through all of our daily rituals together. I mean, the, we are, we are, we, we couldn't have, we couldn't be, um, sort of in greater intimacy and yet at the same time <laughs> uh, there also seems to be a heightened need for all of us to maintain privacy too oh gosh yes and it's and and it does seem as if that digital space is one of the spaces where we are managing to try to carve out some privacy and some inner world mm -hmm. um so so it's it's very funny now like in my family um everyone's like wait mama's watching the vow we can't <laughs> disturb her <laughs> like that's my private time <laughs> oh I love that lose myself in the absolutely bizarre world of the vow but I also now really understand my daughter's need to go retreat for a while into Snapchat and Instagram. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ways in which she is being able to, to kind of um, protect her own inner world. Yeah. yeah it's, and it's so funny that everyone's obsessed with the vow right now. Because <laughs> I, I, I was like trying to not compare Keith to to Donald Trump and and failing of course it's it's irresistible how can, it's irresistible it's an irresistible comparison to Trump I, I mean Trump does not like volleyball as far as I know but it's like <laughs> but but I think we all need our forms of escape right now absolutely um, absolutely tell me about the story the burglar um, which I love because there are multiple perspectives in a short story and you don't get to see that very often. I stuck very faithfully to the rule about maintaining a single consciousness within a short story for probably 20 years. Yeah. And this was, you know, this was, this was a rule that, that, I think I really adhered to because I was, you know, trying to figure out how does a short story work? Like how, how, how do you suggest the enormity of a life within the small space of a story? Um, and when I first started writing, I was much more unruly uh, and and one of the the forms of of my sort of um, uncontrolled energy was 
not being able to manage point of view. So, so the point of view was uh, a wild, meandering, uncontrolled point of view. And I was learned um, somewhat painfully <laughs> early on in graduate school uh, oh, that th this was a skill that I needed to bring under my control. So for, for many years, I just would only write in close third person, past tense. Um, and, and that's a point of view that I love. I yeah. mean, I just, I, it, it's, 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 it's an endlessly flexible, endlessly rich point of view. I mean, I could happily continue writing in that for eternity. But, but then once you start teaching yeah. and then you're trying to share and impart with your students some of the mistakes that you made and the mm -hmm. hope that they might avoid them and might save themselves some time and trouble, um, I did very much emphasize the importance of committing to a single point of view in a short story. And I heard myself saying this over <laughs> and over again. And at a certain point, you want to rebel against your own strictures. Uh, and, and I found myself just wanting to throw all of that good advice that I had been dispensing, just wanted to throw it out the window. Um, so, so a lot of the stories do have multiple points of view or have shifting points of view or shifty points of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that was born out of my just desired to mutiny after listening to myself <laughs> repeat the same wisdom over and over again. <laughs> and and, also, and I guess it, it seems like you had to become an expert to know when you could break the rule. I'm still far from an expert, but I do. <laughs> I do think twenty years of practicing close third person uh, gave me more confidence to be unruly again. Um, and, and, you know, in the case of the burglar, it also felt necessary to have all of those points of view in play if I was going to try to disturb the narrative of the home invasion. I just felt as if that's a narrative that so quickly can become codified yes. racially and in terms of class. Like I just felt like there was such a risk of that becoming stuck in a certain rut. And I felt like if I was, had stood any chance of telling this story, um, truthfully, I had to allow for all of those points of view to get in there or else I was just going to be saying the same old story about home ownership and about intruders and about who to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to tell that story. And that's like a, a meta commentary uh, in the story from, from the husband who's a writer on a TV show. And, and he is forced into the position of having to codify such a such a narrative. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell me about 
putting all of these stories together and reading them as one kind of entity. And, and, and if you learned anything about the stories that way. Well, it certainly made my own recurring obsessions much more <laughs> evident. <laughs> You know, these were stories that have been written over the course of over 10 years. Um, and I like to, to fancy that I'm somehow evolving or changing. But then, of course, <laughs> when you see the evidence of your thought over a decade, you realize, oh, no, no, no. I'm just compulsively revisiting the same, uh, the, the, the same, the same likes, right? The same <laughs> like, likes, those are the likes. Uh, you like what you like. Um, yeah. And so so seeing all of the stories together did remind me of that. Um, and it was it was it's it's also a, a funny reminder of how certain ideas really lodge in your consciousness. When I was in college, I took a wonderful class on the Gothic. And apparently an idea that really stuck with me <laughs> <laughs> about the Gothic was the, the fear around bodies somehow leaking. Like yes. the, the, the idea that like sort of the body is a container and that you wanna keep that container intact and that a Gothic effect is created when that, that container is somehow breached and that the there's there's seepage or leakage um, as the messy interior makes its way to the outside of the container um, and then you know to to illustrate this uh the the professor nancy armstrong um had us watch Carrie and of course we like oh, rewatched sure. the opening scene in the locker room where all of the mean girls are yelling at Carrie to plug it up um, and clearly this is something that really took root in me because as I was looking at the stories at a whole I'm like oh there's so many leaking bodies in these stories and there's so much um, interest in the different ways in which the body can can't contain what's inside it. So whether it's the little girl in the Earl King who ends up peeing herself at the end of the story or the, the woman in, in the bears who's out running and there's, there's definitely um, a fascination with that in the book that I didn't of course notice at the time of writing, but it was only seeing them all together that, that made me realize um, how compelled I am by that idea. And that's so, that's so interesting because one of the most visceral scenes I think from, from all of the stories was in many little makes when two adolescent girls are trying to force their friend to eat raw cake batter. And she is disgusted. Exactly. Yes. And she's going to defend the container yeah. at all costs. <laughs> at all costs. <laughs> and that's, I mean, salmonella, that's real. 
<laughs> oh, doesn't it seem like so quaint? Like that that was our the greatest worry of that. somehow picking up salmonella. Oh, those are the good old days. Um, yeah. This has been such a pleasure, Sarah. If you can just tell me a couple of books you would like to recommend, I would love to. I would them. love. I would love to. And the greatest unexpected joy of releasing a book during quarantine has been the opportunity to be in conversation with other writers. Uh, so since, you know, I can't do a traditional in-person book tour, um, I've, I've had a chance to have conversations, both Zoom conversations and written conversations with writers whose work is so important to me. And so this period of time has been a chance to read their work so deeply because it's been part of an ongoing conversation. So, so the, the particular books that, that have, have really um, brightened this time of isolation for me because they've made me feel so connected to the writer that I've been talking to. Um, the first is, is The Butterfly Lampshade by oh, Amy Bender. Um, and, and then there's, where reasons end uh, oh, by gosh. Ian Lee. Oh my gosh! Um, and real life by Brandon Taylor. I loved your conversation with Brandon. Um, that was I love. I love how he, he loves you. <laughs> <laughs> if that brings me joy, your friendship brings me joy. And then I got to read um, and talk to Karen Russell about her novella Sleep, Sleep Donation, Sleep. and that was just such um, a, a huge pleasure to, to, to be this was that was a written conversation um, so so but it was so fun to open up my email in the morning and find uh, uh, words from her so 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 those are so those are books that that have been like so sustaining during this time so so those are the ones I wanted to give a special hug to thanks for that hug um and thank you so much for being on the show this was so fun oh Maris I'm such a fan I really loved listening to the podcast it's really been such such um consoling company thank you for listening to the Maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts